there, everyone. Welcome back to Parsha Lab. I'm Beth Lesh. I'm a writer here at Aleph Beta. And I'm Ami Silver, also writer at Aleph Beta. Before we get started, just a quick reminder to all of you out there, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Parsha Lab, share it with your friends and family, and go ahead and rate us five stars so other folks can find us too. We're talking today about Parshas Nitzavim. And for such a short Parsha, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in Parshas Nitzavim. In fact, some of my favorite lines in the entire Torah come from Parshas Nitzavim. You know, we've got, Behold, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, choose life. We've got Loba uh, Shemaim He, you know, the, the Torah is not far up away in the heavens. It's not across the oceans. It's, it's in your heart and in your mouth to follow it. Um, but there's one other line, one other Pusik from this Parsha that really intrigues me. And that's the one that I want to focus on with you today. And that is the final verse in uh, the opening chapter of Nitzavim. Go ahead and look at Deuteronomy chapter 29, the very last verse. Um, Ami, you want to read that for us? Uh, sure, Beth. And the revealed matters are for us and for our children um, forever to do or carry out all of the words of this Torah. Great, Ami. Let's take a few minutes just to try to make sense of this verse. What does this mean to you? What what kind of ideas are jumping out to you when you read this? So I'm going to take a moment here, Beth, because I, I don't really have any context here. I need to take a look and see what are these verses right before that verse talking about. So Ami, I, I think that impulse is right. And I think in this case, the context here really stretches not just back to the prior psukim or the beginning of the Parsha, but to the prior Parsha, to, to Parsha Kitavo. Because in Parsha Kitavo, you might remember there are hidden things. There are things that are described in Parsha Kitavo which are hidden, just like the verse here is referring to. Is, is this ringing any bells for you? Um, I'm intrigued, Beth. Uh, not not remembering the hidden language, but but why don't you show me show me what you're talking about? Okay, all right. So um, remember in Parshat Kitavo, we get that this crazy description of this orchestrated ritual where you know all the tribes go up and they assemble on these two mountains, Har Grizim and Har Eval, mm-hmm. and the Levites are standing in the middle of them, and the Levites call out and say, "Cursed be the man who sets up an idol in secret," and all the people say, "Amen," and "Cursed be the person who dishonors his father or mother," and all the mm-hmm. people say, "Amen." Mm-hmm. So Rabbi Foreman has this cool theory that he introduced in his Parsha video about Kitavo, where he says that there's something that all of these 12 sins have in common. What they have in common is that they're all things that are done in secret. They're all hidden sins. And uh, mm. and if you take a look at the list, you'll see that that's true. You know, someone who makes an idol and sets it up in secret, that's obviously hidden. Someone who dishonors his father or mother, you know, that's also happening in a private living room. No one else is seeing that. Right. As I'm looking at that list now, I'm seeing a lot of these, this language of seter, which uh, links to that, that word, honey, right? The hidden matters, all these 
All these exactly, private little, exactly. Yeah. Private the person be the person who moves his neighbor's landmark. You know, the guy who gets up in the middle of the night and goes, and when no one can see him, he pushes the fence of his neighbor's property a few yards back mm-hmm. in order to make his own property bigger. You know, these are all things that are being done. In or history. this one in verse 18, uh, right? somebody who is leading a blind person astray on their way. Exactly. You might exactly. That could be in broad daylight, but as far as the blind person's concerned, it's, it's an absolute secret. They have no way of knowing. Right. There's no witness to that crime. No one, no one knows what's being done wrong and who's, who's doing it wrong. Um, and, and Rabbi Foreman actually isn't the first person to, to say this. Rabbi Foreman says as much in his Parsi video. He says that this is the Rashbam's reading as well of, mm-hmm. uh, of the 12 secret sins. And in the Rashbam's comment, he links it to our verse, right? He mm, says, all of these things that are beseter, all these things that are in secret, that's the Nistarot that we're talking about. The implication seems to be, you know, People are going to go around creeping in B'nai Israel. Mm. They're going to go around and try to do these secretive things. And um, sometimes they're going to pass under the radar of the law. Sometimes the police won't catch them. Sometimes, you know, there'll be no witnesses to the crime. But just know that, you know, honey, staros lashem, that mm. all the hidden things that you're doing, God sees you sneaking around and moving your neighbor's landmark at night. And even if, you know, you're not going to be able to put him on trial, God will be able to put him on trial. That's how I see it. And that's how I interpret what the what the Rashbam is saying. You know, Beth, if I may, just as you're bringing our attention here to Kitavo, it also kind of really reframes that, you know, that two mountain ritual to me, because because what the whole nation is basically voicing not only disapproval, but basically a pact around all of these secret behaviors. They're all saying out loud in front of everybody and to one another, anyone who does these kind of acts in secret we're all going to say this is a cursed thing to do. That person should be cursed. Exactly, exactly. And I, I, I think, I think this sheds some light actually onto why the ritual is performed on mountaintops. You know, Daniel mm. and I actually, this was the focus of our discussion back in Kitavo. But I think the idea is those things that you think that you're doing in secret when there's no witnesses, when no one can see, you would never act that way if you were on a mountaintop, right? If you, <laughs> right. right, if you thought you were on a pedestal and that everyone could see you, you would never think to move your neighbor's landmark. Mm. Well, you should know that even if there are no human witnesses to your crimes in god's eyes it's as if you're always on a mountaintop when you act so uh, so keep that in mind so um you know coming back to nitzabim that is at least to my mind the most straightforward way to understand this verse that we're talking about you know the nistaros lashem the hidden mm-hmm. things are for god but the niglos are our ladder the niglos are for us it really seems to be delineating two different kinds of justice you know there's divine justice and there's earthly justice and on the one hand, God tells us that we're supposed to set up courts and implement justice as the Torah instructs us to. But there's this kind of justice that we're, we're not going to be able to implement. You know, the guy who moves his neighbor's landmark at night, we may never catch him. Mm-hmm. That we leave to God. The prosecution of the secret sinners, the prosecution of the Nistaros, that we leave to God. We're not able to bring justice to them, and we shouldn't even try. That's how I make sense of the verse. I think it's an interesting encapsulation of our partnership with God. And it leads me to a question. Have there been times in our history, were there earlier times in the Torah where there were secret sins committed? Mm. And if there were, how was justice done for those secret sins? Mm -hmm. Were there attempts to bring earthly justice for that sin? Or was it left in the hands of, of the divine, as the verse implores us to do? That's a really interesting question, Beth. And um, I'd say when you talk about secret sins committed in our past, the first thing that comes to mind is um, the deception of Isaac, 
the very nature of it is disguising the actions, right? Jacob dressed up as his brother, pretended to be somebody else. We talked about uh, back there in Kitavo, cursed is the one who um, misleads a blind man on his way. Uh, Yitzchak, uh-huh. Isaac, was the blind man being misled by his son. And many of the classical commentators, as well as a lot of the work we've done here in Aleph Beta, trace how the misdeeds or mistakes of of the family of Jacob and Isaac were basically played out in in the next generations with Joseph and his brothers and and so on and so forth. So that that was just the first thing that came to mind. That that's interesting to me. Um you know, I mean, let me ask you, would I I agree that it was a sin that was attempted in secret. Like like you're saying it was perpetrated against a blind person and it was done via disguise. Um, and deception. But at the end of the day, the perpetrators were outed, weren't they? At the end of the day, everyone went home knowing what was done wrong and who did what wrong. Am I right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was already by the time Asaph walked in the door, right? Right. 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 <laughs> uh, so I guess the show didn't last too long, but only right, long right. enough to get the blessing. So the question, the next question is, were there any other sins in Israelite history where the perpetrators were never outed? Were there any other sins that remained forever hidden? Well, since we're on the family story, the next thing that comes to mind is the sale of Joseph. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a big mm-hmm. question that Rabbi Foreman has brought up and that we've dealt with at Aleph Beta here as well. Did Jacob ever know right. what the brothers did to Joseph? Or was he just glad when they were all reunited and nobody ever bothered to, <laughs> to recount the whole bloody history? Right. And that's the sale of Joseph is really a classic example of a hidden crime. Because if you think about the way that it was perpetrated, you know, the brothers throw him in, into the pit. He ends up getting sold down to Mitzrayim. And then, having committed the act, then what do they do? Then they created a foil, right? They they brought the bloody cloak with sheep's blood on it and or goat's blood and, and said to their father, hey, do you recognize whose coat this is? Exactly. Basically they, they led mean- him to assume that Joseph was eaten by a wild animal. Right. They, they manufactured this whole pretense mm-hmm. just to cover their tracks. I think we call that fabricating evidence. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, Ami, it's really interesting that your mind went there because my mind went there too. And not only because of this this conceptual question that I'm asking you, you know, about uh, was there another time in Israelite history where there was a hidden sin? It's not just the themes that are pointing me here. It's the text as well. I think if you look at the whole of the chapter, you see a number of textual clues, one after the other, that really do seem reminiscent of the Joseph story. Not exactly of the Mm. moment of the sale of Joseph, but of a moment just a little bit later in that saga. So I want to go through with you some of those parallels that I I found. I want to know what you think about them. I want to know if you can find any others. I have no no idea what to make of this. I think it's kind of nuts. So, uh, So let's dive in. Okay, I'm excited. So here we are, we're chapter 29, Moshe is calling to all of Israel, he's uniting them all together, and there's this emphasis on the fact that everyone is here, right? Uh, Ami, do you see some of that language? If you, if you take a look at um, verses 9, 10... You see what I'm talking about? Sure. Um, Kulchem, all of you are here together, your leaders, your elders, your officers, etc. Right? The, the water the water carriers, the, the wood choppers. 
Exactly. It's everyone. The little ones, the women, the, the tribes, everyone is here. And actually, one of the most interesting parts of this Parsha um, is if you look at, at verses 13 and 14, you get another another encapsulation of this idea of everyone being here. You want to mm-hmm. you want to read those for us, Ami? Okay. So starting at, at 29, verse 13. I'm not forming this covenant with you alone. And this curse, I guess, that's referring to some kind of condition. On the covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Rather, this covenant is with all who are here, present, standing with us today before God. And and also with those who are not with us here today. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of a crazy, crazy thought. I mean, that's a whole separate podcast of its own. Mm-hmm. How do you make a covenant with people who are not there today, right? People who are there and people who are not there. But that seems to be Moses' implication. The entirety of B'nai Israel is is united on this day. And they're all united for one purpose, which is to seal a covenant and serve their, their father in heaven, right? And what's at stake, of course, is nothing less than life and death itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in the whole prior parak, we heard about all the curses that are going to befall the people if they don't keep to the covenant. And at the end of this Parsha, we hear that famous line about how really what I'm setting before you is, is life and death. Choose life. You mm-hmm. know, that th- those are the stakes. Mm-hmm. So, Beth, I don't know if this is one of the things you had in mind, but I think that there's some Joseph and brothers language here, even in this verse we just read. This word, etasher enenu po, the ones who are not here with us. If I'm not mistaken, when the brothers um, were in Egypt and Joseph was standing there in the guise of, uh, you know, the Egyptian second in command, I think the brothers described their missing brother Yosef as ha'echad enenu. There's one who is not here. Yes. It's the same word that's here right now. Yes, exactly. So the word enenu appears in that verse and also hayom, mm. right? There's this this emphasis on who is standing there today mm-hmm. and who is not standing there today. The mm-hmm. people who were standing there in Joseph's day were the 10 brothers. And the people who weren't standing there today were Binyamin on the one hand, who's home with his father. And then Yosef, on the other hand, who's mm-hmm. Enenu Pohayom, he's he's not. He's not here. So, Ami, that was the first thing that I saw. I'm really glad that you picked up on it. That was the first thing. Because this word Enenu is very, very unusual in the Torah. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that made me say, huh, could this possibly be pointing us back to Genesis 42? Mm-hmm. And the more I looked, the more I found. Because, you know, really, if you think about the Nitzavim parallel, in, in Nitzavim, Moshe is gathering all of B'nai Yisrael together. Well, there was another time back in the Joseph story when someone tried to gather all of the children of Israel together. And that person was Joseph. Joseph was mm-hmm. trying to gather all of the children of Israel together, right? Right. So he's trying to get, they come at first with Yamin, right? Because Jacob doesn't want to lose his other beloved son. And, and Joseph basically orchestrates things to the point where the brothers have to go back and bring their younger brother Binyamin with them. Exactly, exactly. He orchestrates this whole crazy story where he throws them in the jail and then keeps Shimon. And all of it is for the goal of trying to get all of B'nai Israel, all 12 entities, all 12 representatives of, of the tribes to be standing united together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this emphasis on, well, there's some of us are here today, but some of us are not here today, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something very interesting also just in the very next verse here in Yitzavim, verse 15 
For you know at the Shayashavnu Mitzrayim. You are the ones who know about our dwelling in the land of Egypt. And we all know where where did the dwelling in the land of Egypt begin? Right? It all began there began there with Joseph and his brothers. Exactly, exactly. Um there's another verse here which piqued my interest, and that is um Deuteronomy twenty nine, verse three. Moses is telling the people this very odd verse. He says, mm-hmm. Look, basically up until this point, you haven't been able to truly know, truly see, or truly hear. And now, starting today, as of the sealing of this covenant, you're able you're able to know and to see and to hear. But in the past, you weren't able to know or see or hear. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a time in the story of the, the saga of Joseph in Genesis chapter 42, this chapter we've been looking at, where the B'nai Yisrael were not able to know and were not able to hear. Interesting. And and they certainly didn't have the eyes to see who was standing in front of them. Exactly. And the verse that I'm talking about is verse 23 in Genesis 42. Right? They didn't know that Joseph was able to hear them, that he understood them, because mm-hmm. there was an interpreter between them. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, there the brothers are. They're assembled in front of Yosef, but they don't know that he's Yosef. And they start saying, oh my gosh, these terrible things that are happening to us, maybe it's all all just a punishment for the fact that we treated our brother Yosef so badly all the way back when, mm-hmm. right? And they don't realize, they don't know that Joseph right there is in front of them and is able to understand them. They think he's an Egyptian, he must speak another language, he doesn't understand their language, but in fact he does. So back then they didn't know, back then they couldn't hear, like you said, back then they couldn't see, but um, by the time we get to Nitzavim, they're in a position to see. Mm-hmm. You also made the point that um, they weren't able to see that the person standing before them was Joseph, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's a reason for that, and the reason for that is verse 7 in, in, the, in, in Genesis 42. Okay, I'll read that verse. Vayar Yosef et Echav Vayakirem. And Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. Vayitnaker Alehem Vayidaberitam Kashot. And he made himself a stranger to them and spoke harsh words to them. Now, just, just a side point here. It's a really kind of fascinating play on words there that Vayakirem Vayitnaker. Joseph recognizing and Joseph making himself a stranger both have this shared kind of cuff resh Almost the same linguistic root there, meaning both to be familiar and to make yourself unfamiliar, to make mm. yourself disguised. Mm-hmm. He says to them, Where did you come from? We came from Canaan in order to, to get food. Right. So what Joseph is doing is he's hiding himself, mm-hmm. right? He's um, Again, it comes back to that, that those themes in Nitzavim that um, he's, he's committing some kind of hidden crime. He's acting in secret. He's acting in a way so that people won't know who he is or what he's doing. Uh, again, we talked about how in Nitzavim, the um, the people are all uniting together. They're all uniting to serve their one heavenly Father, and that what's at stake is nothing less than than life and death. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think I think we see that also in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Um, take a look at chapter forty three of Genesis. This time, it's verse eight. Okay, so here the brothers are back from Joseph to go back to Canaan and, and try to convince their father to send Benjamin with them. Mm-hmm. And Yehuda el Yisrael Aviv, Yehuda says to his father, Israel, Shilcha Hanari Akuma send the youth with me. We'll go up and we'll, we'll journey there. Namut, we shall then live and not die. Gamanachnu, Gamatagam Tapenu, wow. We're going to live and not die, both us, both you, and also our children. It really kind of echoes that language in Itzavim, right? All the people who are gathered here today 
including tapchem, your children. Um, really interesting. Yeah. So, so I mean, we've put some evidence on the table. I don't think it's ironclad yet. I think at this point we're uh, we're in the the vicinity of um, interesting, right? Or is that how you feel? I'd, I'd agree to that. I find this interesting. Okay, okay. But I think it does give us permission to do the following. You know, just to to circle back to the beginning of this podcast, we opened up by saying, really, it seems like conceptually, Kitabo and Nitzavim are forming this package. It's this package that warns against what will happen if any member of B'nai Yisrael tries to commit a sin in secret. And it's, a, and it's a package that tells us that it's not our job as human beings to prosecute the secret sinners, to bring them to justice. Only God can do that, right? And that pointed us back to the story of Joseph and the sale of Joseph. That, that was really the first time in Israelite history that we had a real classic secret sin that was committed. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just the themes that linked us back to the story of Joseph and his brothers. We found all of these different textual links also in the Perak that seemed to be hinting back to Joseph, right? And I think it gives us permission to ask the question, how was justice done for that secret sin? The sale of Joseph that the brothers perpetrated in secret. Did Joseph attempt to bring justice himself upon them? Or did he leave the justice in the hand of God? Mm -hmm. That's the question I want to ask you. Well, he certainly meddled (laughs) with justice, right? He certainly pulled some strings and continued to orchestrate things. Did he finally mete out justice and and punish them and hold them accountable? Um, question mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Ami, Nitzavim tells us that the Nistaros are supposed to be for God to prosecute. The secret sins are supposed to be in God's hands. So the question is, when Joseph gets the brothers into his hands, right, these perpetrators of a secret sin, when they come and show up on his doorstep in Mitzrayim, mm-hmm. and they don't know that it's him, does he leave the Nistaros to God? the way that Nitzavim urges us and him to do? Or does he take justice into his own hands? You know, Beth, I feel like that is one of the huge unanswered questions about the Joseph story. You know, we don't get Joseph's soliloquies. We don't get him speaking to the audience saying, oh, here are my brothers. This isn't Shakespeare. We see what Joseph does. We can infer a whole lot from what he does. The brothers make inferences of why are these things happening to us? Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if it's safe to say that it's a little bit of both. I mean, I, I want to go to this pasuk again. Mm-hmm. Right? The hidden matters are for God. The revealed matters are for us. And I want you know, there's one way to read that as being two totally different realms. There are such things as hidden matters. That's the stuff God deals with. There are such things as revealed matters. That's that's the stuff that it's our obligation to take care of. But I'm wondering if the the word there and is not necessarily dividing them into two neat categories, but saying mm. that there's different sides to these stories. In, in in any case of justice, you're dealing with your best guest based on what you know. Mm. And there's always the unknowns. And even when you know the whole story, there's the things deeper in that person's heart, the motivating factors, the things that led towards this scenario that that truly only God knows and can manage. So I'm wondering if Joseph is doing his best to deal with the situation based on what he knows, what he feels, what he thinks is right. Yeah. And he's 
partnering with God here. Yeah, that's a really intriguing possibility. What, what, what I hear you saying is, you know, the way that we had previously read this Pasuk is that there's basically two different kinds of crimes. You know, there's the guy who commits a crime in broad daylight, and there are two witnesses who, who see him and testify in trial about what he did. And that's not a case of the Nistar, that's a case of the Nigla. That is something which is obviously open and revealed to everyone, and that person gets prosecuted in an earthly court of law. And then there's the Nistaros. Then there's the person who sneaks in the dark of night to move his neighbor property line and no one's ever going to know that he did it so only God can judge him Mm -hmm. but what I hear you saying is no even that person who committed his crime in broad daylight yes there are witnesses who are going to get up and testify and yes the earthly judges can and should implement justice you know to the best degree possible but they're never going to know the full story maybe there's some there, there was something going on in his mind there was some intention there was some intervening factor that only God is privy to and yes God is going to allow the you know the 20-year sentence, you know, for this guy to pass, but God is going to do his own kind of justice in the background. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a partnership because every crime maybe hasn't can have an element of Nistar and um, and Nigla tied up together. Right. And, and I want to take it even further because think about the whole Joseph story from start to finish is filled with basically a surface level narrative of the events that happen mm-hmm. and some kind of much deeper story that's unfolding behind all of it. Right. We can go as far back to the Brip and Habtarim of when the covenant between the pieces, when God said to Abraham, your, your children are going to be strangers in a land that's not their own. Mm-hmm. And the prophecy of the enslavement of Egypt that ends up somehow coming through this story. That's right. But I'm even thinking of what Joseph said to his brothers at the very end of Breshi, when the brothers mm-hmm. were bowing saying, Joseph, have mercy on us. We're so sorry for what we didn't. He said, what are you talking about? You didn't send me down here. God sent me to Egypt to give you life. That's right. Meaning Joseph himself is saying what you think you did, there was a Nistar that was Lashem Elokeinu. God was in a hidden way orchestrating the whole thing, pulling the strings for our benefit. Mm -hmm. It was Nistar, but it was Nigla to Yosef. And it was revealed (laughs) to Yosef in his dream. And it's only all of these years later when the brothers are standing before Joseph that Joseph finally realizes that the Nistar was Nigla. And Mm -hmm. then now it's come to be, right? That these hidden seeds of what's going on beneath the surface take maybe a long time to gestate until they get to a point of full revelation and understanding what is actually going on here. What's yeah. what's the purpose of this whole thing? So, you know, I mean, I think it's a really intriguing point. I'm so I'm so glad that you um, muddled the dichotomy between the, the Nistaros and the Niglos. I, I think you're absolutely right that in in every situation, you know, and any action that a person takes, there's some there's some aspect of Nistar there that only Hashem can know and that only Hashem can dole out justice for. But nonetheless, like you said, we, we act based on the information that we have. So what I want to do is like, can, let's just review, you know, the bullet points of what happens in, in the Joseph story. How does Joseph respond when he when he finds that he has these perpetrators in his hand? And how do we read his actions? Do we see that he tries to do justice or do we see that he lets God mm-hmm. do it? You know, so so what happens in the story, right? You know, the, the brothers in chapter 42, the brothers show up and the first thing Joseph does is he makes himself a stranger to them, right? Mm-hmm. He He hides himself and he speaks harshly to them and he scares them and he accuses them of being spies. And then he says, here's how we're going to suss out whether or not you really are spies we're gonna throw you in jail and he throws them in a jail for three days by the way just like he himself had been thrown in a jail because Mm -hmm. of what his brothers had done to him right 
And then he lets all but one of them go. And now Shimon is stuck in the jail. And the rest of them are supposed to go home and get Binyamin. And they can't, they're going to die if they don't bring Binyamin back. Because he says, you know, you're going to run out of food eventually. And I'm the master of the food. And you're not going to, I won't see you unless you bring Binyamin with you. Beth, I just want to interject here for a second. Isn't that interesting that his first test of them is to see if this hidden matter can be revealed to be true. You say you have some brother who's not here right now who's back at home. That's a mystery to me. Either he exists or he doesn't. Let's see if you can prove that hidden matter to be true in a uh-huh, revealed uh-huh. way. Bring your brother and show me his face. Right. I don't want him to remain hidden. I want him to be revealed. So bring him to me. So, so far, I don't know, based on just that alone, Ami, it, it, it seems to me, I, I feel torn about this because it seems like Joseph is playing games with them it seems mm-hmm. like he's you know one way to read this is ha 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 you you did this terrible thing to me all those years ago and now i've got you in my hand and i'm in the seat of power and i get to repay some of that ill that you that you paid towards me i mm-hmm. I, I don't know i think that's one way to read it what, what are you seeing in this on me mm-hmm. i think it, it definitely does seem that way part of what to muddy the waters once more part of what what seems to be this two-sided part of the story is that if I'm not mistaken, Joseph's first action is not just to hide himself, but to go hide and cry, mm-hmm. right? There's all mm-hmm. these hidden tears that Joseph is carrying throughout the story. Mm-hmm. So as much as he might really want to be the tough guy towards them, as much as he might really want to pull them by a string and mess around with them and and get his chance for payback, he's also crying behind closed doors when he mm-hmm. can't contain his emotions anymore. So what's mm-hmm. that about? Mm-hmm. And then, Ami, if you move a little bit further in the story, of course, you get to this famous moment where Joseph orders one of the stewards in his house to take his silver goblet and to place it into Binyamin's sack, mm-hmm. right? And frames Binyamin. I mean, actually, for, we had a, we had an earlier iteration of this when the brothers on their first voyage back home, you know, he returned all of their money in their sacks, and mm-hmm. that scared the daylights out of them. And and then again, he does it. He takes something which is not which is supposed to belong to him, and he puts it in their sacks. Mm-hmm. He frames Binyamin. He threatens that Binyamin is going to be a slave. And you know, you can read this as him toying with them. But why would he toy with Binyamin? Binyamin is is his 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 brother, you know, the other the other child of Rachel. Binyamin, it's not clear if Binyamin was even old enough in the first place to have participated in the sale of Joseph. It seems like he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, Ami, when I, I up until this point, I think you read this saga of Joseph receiving his brothers and you say, Joseph was just playing with them. You know, it was like a cat and a mouse. You know, because he could, because they deserved justice, and he was taking justice into his own hands. But when you get to this part with the framing of Binyamin, I think there's a possibility that it recasts the whole prior story in a new light. And it just makes me wonder if maybe from the start, Joseph was never trying to play with them. He was never trying to do do his own justice. Maybe from the very start, the only question that he was trying to answer for himself was, I was thrown out of this family years ago. And I have a choice. I can either become, I can either reveal myself or I can remain hidden. And I have to choose, do I want to be a part of this family now? And are they ready to have me as a part of the family? And the litmus test is, how do the brothers treat the B'nai Rachel? How do the brothers treat the other child of Rachel? You know, he was the first child of Rachel and he was thrown into a pit. You know, the children of Rachel were always the, the ones who were more beloved. So he orchestrates this whole elaborate scene, not to torture them, but maybe just for the purpose of recreating this test to see, okay, brothers, when Binyamin's life is on the line, 
what are you going to do? Are you going to do like what you did with me in the pit all those years ago? Or are you going to step up? Mm-hmm. Maybe he wasn't doing justice all along. I, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I think what you're what you're saying, Beth, makes sense, especially if we, we kind of see the evolution of Joseph throughout the story with his brothers when he's in Egypt, right? Like I said before, there's these tears that accompany him throughout. At first he cries, then he just turns around to to yell at them and threaten. The next time they come around with Binyamin, he goes and cries again, but then he gets mm. himself together. And by the way, I'm looking at the 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 last place where he cannot bear his tears anymore. It says, Velo yachol Yosef He could not hold himself back anymore. The chol hanitzavim alav. To all those who were nitzavim upon him. All those standing there around him, yeah. which are obviously his brothers. And I wonder if somehow, maybe at first he did, when he spoke those harsh terms, he was trying to hold them accountable and and give payback. But but at some point, the tears overwhelmed. And, and the Joseph who was trying to hide from his brothers overwhelmed the Joseph who wanted to pay them back. And, and maybe we see part of that throughout the rest of the story, right? At some point, it's about wanting to reunite with his siblings rather than holding a grudge against them. I think that's a really fascinating possibility. So, so just to, to say it again, what I hear you saying is um, maybe at the start of the story, Joseph wasn't following the advice. He wasn't following the directive from Nitzavim. He wasn't leaving the Nitzaros to God. He was trying to take it into his own hands. And at a certain point throughout the story, the love wins out. And mm-hmm. he says, okay, fine. At the end of the day, like, God orchestrated this sale. Maybe they're not hidden sinners after all. This was all part of God's plan. And I'm, I'm going to leave it to God. I'm not going to try to to do justice. I think it's an interesting possibility. And it just also makes me realize, you know, it's so easy for us as Monday morning quarterbacks to look back at Joseph's reaction and say, what was he doing speaking harshly to them? You know, it's one thing to not reveal yourself. It's one thing to orchestrate a test, but there seemed to be a lot of unnecessary punishments along the way, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to remember, Joseph didn't know they were coming. Like he, he, he was waiting there on the throne of Egypt for all of these years. And it's not like he was thinking to himself, my brothers are going to walk in the door today and I have the opportunity to create the perfect situation to find out if they've become good or not you know i mean they Mm -hmm. catch him completely off guard so the question is in that moment you know yeah there probably is some resentment there and there probably is some desire for for vengeance there and it's like do do you blame him he hasn't had a chance to think it through you know right and and i think just to come back to where our point of reference was where you started us off back i think it's powerful that we're linking back to Kitavo with the, the tribe standing on the different mountaintops mm. and basically saying to one another, let's all hold ourselves and one another accountable to not be hiding these wicked deeds. Mm-hmm, let's mm-hmm. all hold each other as one family, as one nation composed of 12 tribes. Let's hold ourselves together accountable to be the ones who are going to be uncovering hidden truths and treating one another in a way that's just and uprooting the causes of destruction in our family, which come from people doing all these things in a hidden manner. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. But but like you said, and I keep coming back to your point about the evolution of, of Yosef, it took a little while to get there. Because this whole story of how Yosef acts towards his brothers, it's one hidden act after another, you know, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the hiddenness of him hiding himself from them. It's the hiddenness of him throwing them into jail into a hidden place where no one can see them. It's the hiddenness of him, you know, retaining Shimon and sending them back to their father to get Binyam. And it's the hiddenness of the, him putting 
putting their money back in their sacks without them knowing it. And mm-hmm. actually, Ami, in fact, let me show you something very cool about that. So, um, so if you remember, the first time they go back to Canaan, he puts the money in their sacks and they open up the sacks and they're terrified and they say, oh my gosh, you know, what is this guy, this, this Egyptian man going to do when he finds out that we took this money back? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading in between the lines here, mm-hmm. you know, we were supposed to have paid this to him and now we have it back. Oh my God, we stole this money. And Jacob, their father, who sends them back to Egypt says, listen guys, I know you're worried about what happened. Take extra money in your sacks and make sure that you take back that money that was placed in your sacks. Make sure you take it back and bring it to Egypt because what does he say? Take a look at chapter 43, verse 12. What does he say? Take it back. Um, Ulai, lest... Ulai mishkehu. Now, I mean, how, how do you translate mishke? It's a very unusual word. I assume it has something to do with the word shogeg, which is a mistake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that there might be two things going on with this word, because on the one hand, I think you're right, it probably is related to shogeg. Like perhaps the money was put back in your bag unintentionally. You, di- you didn't know, you know, they it, it was a mistake. They didn't mean for it to, to go back into your bag, and you can clear this whole thing up. But I think there's something else going on with this word. This word mishke doesn't appear anywhere else in the Torah, but a very similar word does appear in one other place. And it's spelled the same way, but the vowels are different. And the word that I'm thinking of is not mishge, but mashge. Mm -hmm. And the word mashge, you actually read it at the beginning of our podcast. The word mashge comes up. It's one of the 12 hidden sins, which is pronounced atop har'eval. Right, Arur Mashgeh Cursed is the one who misguides or misleads a blind person on their way. Right, and the implication there doesn't seem to be that it's Beshogeg, that it's accidental. Mm-hmm. The implication mm-hmm. there seems to be someone who deceives and manipulates and misguides a blind mm-hmm. person without, you know, a person who doesn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I think perhaps there's a double meaning to what Yaakov is saying. Perhaps the mm-hmm. money was put back in your bag, Beshogeg, but perhaps <laughs> it was it was the case of one of those paradigmatic secret sins. Perhaps it was Joseph, although he doesn't know it's Joseph, being mashke, a blind person. Maybe that Egyptian prince is playing with you. Exactly, exactly. Um, and he's playing with you in a way that no one will ever know because there's no real witness to this crime. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ami, so where does where does that leave us? You know, I think the thematic parallels here are really cool. I think the textual parallels here are intriguing and there's even more evidence that we didn't get into cover. But I have to tell you, this was fascinating for me just because it it gave me a chance to open up, to reopen the whole saga of Joseph and ask this question, which I'd never thought to ask before, which is like, what was he doing in all of those interactions with his brothers every step of the way with the harsh words and the hiddenness? And was he playing games with them like clay in his hand or was he doing something else entirely, something quite justifiable? How much was emotion and how much was calculation? You know what I mean? I'm curious to hear what our listeners think about this. You know, do you do you buy? my uh, my defense of Joseph or do you think there's something more going on here and and I'd say for myself personally I like to read the stories of our biblical characters as human beings albeit very remarkable human beings um, but I think the greatest things that I learn from is seeing them go through human processes which include doubts which include insecurities and 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 lack of clarity and which sometimes find real redemptive resolution yeah. And I, and I even wonder, I'm thinking to myself out loud, why is Moshe maybe bringing back all of this language and symbolism from the Joseph story at this point in the Torah, at this point in the nation's history? 
he might be also learning from Joseph. Mm -hmm. And he might be also saying, as a nation, we still need to grapple with what Joseph grappled with and with what the brothers grappled with. And we're going to have to learn how to reckon with it. And we've seen the mistakes. We've seen the disasters of the past. Let's make sure that we can work on that going forward in a way that's going to be healthy and just for all of Mm -hmm. us. I think that's right, Ami. I think that's a great question to ask. And I'm leaning in another direction. I am thinking about not how was Moshe making sense of this story, but how do I in my life make sense of this story? Mm-hmm. You know, we had started out by saying that, that the, the Nistaros are for God. Maybe what that means is that things that are committed in secret are for God. But maybe there's another way to interpret it. You know, maybe what it means is that the revealed things are for us. The kind of justice that we do should be justice, which is nigla, which is justice, which is done openly, candidly, transparently in a, in a court, not the kind of justice that is done on the sly, passive aggressively. Let me stick some money in your sack Mm. and see how you make Mm -hmm. sense of it. Let me frame you and test you and see what you do with this test. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of hidden justice in the Joseph story. And the only thing that allows it to come to a resolution is Yehuda stepping forth with Vayigash and saying, no more of this concealed anything. I'm going to reveal everything and put everything on the table. Mm -hmm. And that's what stirs Joseph to reveal himself in the end. You know, Mm -hmm. so I'm just thinking about the times in my life when, you know, no one's ever sold me into slavery, but just the times when I'm simmering over something in a relationship. And it's like, are you going to try to do justice in a secret way? Or is the best resolution here to just put it on the table and let everything be open? And maybe if something is really revealed, um, it's healthier to talk about it and deal with it than to pretend that it's hidden. Yeah, that too. That too. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Ami, that was great. Thanks for going on this journey with me and uh, playing around with these questions. To those of you who are listening, we love getting feedback from you. Every email that we get, it's amazing to be in conversation with you, to hear about you know your reactions to these podcasts. So please keep on sending us your thoughts and your questions. Let us know what you think about Joseph. Let us know how you see this going on in your own lives. As always, please remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe, please share with your friends and family, and please rate us five stars so that your love of the Partial Lab podcast will be revealed to all of us. (laughs) It won't remain hidden. 